Most precious blood of Jesus, price of our salvation, save us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I will not belabor the obvious fact that July 1st marks the halfway point of the new year. It is worth considering, however, that each half of the year begins with a feast of the most precious blood of our Savior. On January 1st, we commemorate the first shedding of his blood as an infant. Today we honor the pouring out of every last ounce of his blood during his most bitter passion. We mustn't make the mistake of thinking that the Feast of the Precious Blood is somehow the second half of the Feast of Corpus Christi, as though Corpus Christi should celebrate only the body of our Lord, in today's feast only his blood. To be sure, all the feasts of our Lord which we keep during this long Trinity tide, Corpus Christi, the Sacred Heart, the Precious Blood, the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, Christ the King, they are all intimately connected. They are all daughters of Christmas, all profound meditations on the mystery of the Incarnation. Corpus Christi is the Feast of the Blessed Sacrament. It celebrates our Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity, contained really, truly, and substantially under the sacramental veils. In this grace-filled time after Pentecost, we return to the cenacle of Holy Thursday and celebrate the institution of the Holy Eucharist with all the pomp and splendor which was denied us during Passion Time. That is the meaning of Corpus Christi. Today on this feast, instituted far more recently by blessed Pope Pius IX, it is not Holy Thursday which we revisit, but Good Friday. While we celebrate the unbloody sacrifice, we consider the bloody sacrifice which it represents. On Good Friday, no Mass was celebrated, and the ministers wore black. Now is the time after Pentecost. The Holy Ghost has enlightened our hearts, and we now see the victory that our Lord's blood won for us on Calvary. Therefore, as on the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross, the ministers wear red vestments. The future Pope Pius IX was only a few months old when France, the eldest daughter of the Church, murdered its king and plunged all Europe into a long century of revolutionary bloodshed, which ushered in the world we have today, a world which acknowledges no king, least of all Christ the King. When Pius IX began his pontificate, he greeted revolutionary Europe with a fatherly smile. He could not accept the new ideas which were so hostile to the gospel of Christ, but he strove whenever he could to accommodate the new political reality. The only response he got was treachery. He soon had open rebellion in the pontifical states. He saw his own secretary of state cut down in the streets of Rome. And only two years after taking the tiara, 
he and the cardinals had to flee the Eternal City, which descended into anarchy. A revolutionary Roman Republic was proclaimed, and the marauders who now ruled Rome abolished the rights of the Church and governed the people with acts of terror. Whence should help come, if not from the one who first started the stir? stir? It was the eldest daughter of the Church, Fair France, who would rise to the occasion. She herself had been laid low by violent revolution, and it seemed that she would never again regain her ancient glories. But the father of Christendom was in supreme peril, and the descendants of Charlemagne hastened to Rome in battle array to restore the Pope to his seat. On June 29, 1849, feast of the holy apostles who first consecrated the eternal city with their blood, the revolution was crushed and the godless Roman Republic was dissolved. The returning Pope declared that the Sunday following the victory should henceforth be a feast of the most precious blood of Jesus, price of our salvation. As we celebrate this feast of the apostles, founders of the Church of Rome, we are reminded that the constitution of our little republic, like that of all other countries, is fleeting. It is a thing of this world. As Americans, we all have an interest in the political events of our nation. But patriotism must be for us a supernatural virtue. We must be concerned above all for the eternal salvation of our fellow Americans. The constitution of the church is divine and eternal. Our Lord has made no declaration of divine authority to the President, the Congress, or the Supreme Court, except in as much as all authority comes from God. It was to Peter alone that our Lord in the regions of Caesarea Philippi, monument to Roman power in the Hebrew world, made his solemn declaration, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. How often do we hear these words of our Savior without reflecting on their full meaning? We are not just supposed to be defending the church. We are fighting a battle, not at the gates of our city, but at the gates of hell. Ours is no rear-guard action of a retreating army. We are the ones on the attack, and we know that victory is ours. We shall not win by force of arms, nor by elections, nor by court decisions. The battle was won 2,000 years ago by the most precious blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, who tore open the gates of hell and opened heaven to all who forsake the honors of this world to adore that price of our salvation. To that most precious and adorable blood be all glory and honor forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.